So Psalm 3 deals with David on the move from Absalom and his treacherous men. And he would be praying during the daytime. And this time he is praying at night time. From Psalm 3, we picked out the word Selah, which would appear three times, meaning Amen, Alleluia, praise the Lord. And last week we discussed famous fathers. It could be Eli, it could be Samuel, and especially King David. Even Solomon's son wasn't much of a father. And if you profile those in church history, some of the greatest preachers, you may be surprised what they went through, how they struggled over many a year. I think of Barry Smith, for example, who had daughters, I think three from memory and one son. And uh, like we discussed last week, the legacies of these famous fathers. And when Barry Smith died back in 2003, mm. his son didn't replace him. In fact, we were about to see him that night up in central London. And we arrived at a location to see Barry preach. Had been looking forward to it. Yeah. I'd been saved around a year, Patrick, over three years ahead of me. And it was interesting, we arrived at this church in London, and a lot of sad faces, a lot of somber-looking people. And uh, we were speaking to one of the leaders in this particular church that we loosely knew, I suppose, and his agent was also present. And uh, basically, Barry had died. Earlier on that day, he died in a hospital in Watford, from memory, alone. And I thought how sad that was. If you go back, 2000 it was, his daughter had been suffering with depression for many, many years, awful crippling depression. She may have also been suffering with bipolar, and one day she couldn't take it anymore. She'd witnessed her husband drown, and it got too much for Barry's daughter, and she would commit suicide. And of course, he never really got over that. And I don't think Dave really got over the Absalom incident either. If you think back to the late 1980s, Dean Martin had a son, he had many sons, many daughters, but he had a favorite son, Dean Martin Jr., a famous tennis player. And he was flying from A to B, and his plane crashed. And of course, he was killed straight away. Dean Martin was told the news. It broke him, basically. He never got over it. So we can understand why people go through what they go through. But the question has to be asked, how do you handle it? How do you handle a crisis? David was a good man, a godly man, saved man, most importantly. But he wasn't much of a father. On top of that, Satan has been whispering in Absalom's ear. You can do it, Absalom. You can take your father's throne. He's getting old now, up in years. Not long from now, he will be struggling to get heat. He'll be cold every night and he'll have to have a <coughs> damsel to get into bed with him to keep him warm. His best is behind him. And Absalom, like the devil, Isaiah 14, and also Matthew 4, Luke 4, was able to get under the skin of Absalom. Absalom wasn't a good son, he was a bad son. The son of Solomon wasn't a good son, he was a bad son. The son of Hezekiah, like Manasseh, was a bad son. So if you are a parent, or if you are a new parent, a new father, do the best you can. You only get one crack at being a good father. If you neglect your children, especially your sons, those days will never come back again. And David, I'm sure, as he was dying, looked back over his life and thought, if only I'd spent more time disciplining Absalom using corporal punishment to discipline Absalom but of course he didn't do that he probably spoiled him rotten and uh, because of that he had a sport brat on his hands so father we pray for your blessing this morning as we begin psalm chapter four this will be week number nine and by your mercy and grace lord we have recorded uh, five and a half hours of material so far and we pray for your blessing this morning as we continue to work through the book of psalms and we pray for this now in jesus name amen and amen, amen. 
Psalm 4, Psalm 4, look at verse 1. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me, and hear my prayer. So, over the last several weeks, I've been reading the Psalms each and every day. I like to immerse myself into a particular book that I'm reading and recording. And I was looking at some of my Bible commentaries, some better than others. And I came across one footnote from 4.1, making the argument that back in the Old Testament, and of course this is nothing new to me, and it shouldn't be to you too, but back in the Old Testament, it has been argued that Jews were saved by their faith and their works. Like they had something to offer the Lord. An embarrassing blunder, a stupid statement. It's like this. You're on a boat and there's holes in the boat. It's pitch black. Sharks are circling the boat. And on top of that, you can't swim. And then one day, or some, all of a sudden, somebody comes alongside you and says, Save yourself. Save yourself. How can you save yourself? The boat is sinking. Sharks are circling the boat like I say. You can't even swim. It's pitch black. And some idiot shouting out, save yourself, save yourself. You can't save yourself. Hear me when I call, David speaking, night time, like I say. Night number two, he's sleeping under threat, rough night, rough and ready. Like I say, he's sleeping, he's been forced on the move, like a criminal. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Of course, what he's saying is this, you are my righteousness, you are my glory. Going back to Psalm uh, 3, 3. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory, and the lifter up of mine head. So four one again, hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness, you are my righteousness, like my Lord and my God, like the God of my salvation. So we have to take the time to dismantle the heresy that people back in the Old Testament were saved by their faith and their works, and they'll be saved by their faith and their works in the tribulation. It is a heresy. It's a stupid blunder. And just about five minutes before we started to go live, I thought this. I thought, do you realize that just five or six people have influenced maybe two or three thousand years of people? Do you realize that? You go back pre-Christ to ancient Greece, you've got maybe five or six Greek philosophers. And one of my projects one day will be to expose some of those stupid Greek philosophers. Socrates, for example, would worship and sacrifice to the snake god before he committed suicide for being a sodomite and a paedophile. And you go back through ancient Greece, some of those men, five or six people, like I say, have influenced an entire generation of people. And to this day, if you study at university, if you study philosophy, you are going to have to read some of the writings from those philosophers and yet check their personal lives out. Into every possible sin would worship every possible entity, or if you look at the Catholic Church, you've got people like Aquinas, people like Jerome, people like Eusebius. Those two have influenced an entire generation, if not hundreds of generations of priests. If you go into the Church of Rome, if you study to be a priest, you will read the writings of famous Roman Catholics. And you are going to be, again, influenced by some of those people. Uh, if you study evolution at school, you will be influenced by Darwin, a Freemason, Huxley, and others who... Very dubious, Karl Marx, another Freemason uh, from the Jewish persuasion, and yet apparently Marx's parents got saved. So it's really quite interesting if you take the time to study history how three or four groups over three or four thousand years have influenced almost everyone. But unfortunately, we have some people in the King James community which have also influenced many people, like this faith and works nonsense. 
And it could be Ruttman who was responsible for that, although we may have to go back before him to find the real culprits. But one more time, 4-1. Hear me when I call, David speaking. O God of my righteousness, you are my righteousness. You are my covering. You are my saviour, my Lord and my God. He's not boasting in his own righteousness. What can he offer the Lord? He's on that boat, pitch black. Sharks are circling it, holes in the boat. He can't swim. And someone comes along and says, David, save yourself. He can't save himself. You can't save yourself. And I'll keep using that analogy of a sinking boat to make the point that it's foolishness and it's ridiculous, it's blasphemous, in fact, to teach that people have something to offer the Lord. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. Keep your hand there and go to Daniel uh, chapter 9. Your best will never be any good. And I've used the analogy in the past of a lifeguard who sees somebody drowning in a pool and he jumps into the pool and he makes his way to the drowning victim. And the first thing that he says to the drowning victim is to stop trying to save yourself. Allow me to save you. Allow me to rescue you. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. Uh, Daniel chapter 9. Look at verse 18. Oh my God, incline thine ear and hear. Open thine eyes and behold our desolations and the city which is called by thy name. For we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousnesses, but for thy great mercies. Daniel, one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, is in captivity. We believe he was castrated. We believe he was a eunuch. He had an awful life, and he would be faithful unto the death. And here he doesn't spend five minutes looking at his own righteousness. He calls on the Lord's name. Look at verse 19. O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken. And do, defer not, for thine own sake, O my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. Jews equal Jehovah. Jehovah equals the Jews. Christ equals Christians. Christians equal Christ. So the Jews are named after Jehovah. Christians are named after Christ. One more time. 9.18. O my God, incline thine ear and hear. Open thine eyes and behold our desolations. And the city which is called by thy name, being Jerusalem, of course. For we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousnesses, but, 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 for thy great mercies. Isaiah would say, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags, like an unclean rag, or a woman's menstrual cloth. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thine own sake, O my God. For thy city and thy people are called by thy name. Go back to 4.1. Psalm 4.1. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. O God of my righteousness. Not David's own personal righteousness. God's righteousness. The aniseed is on God. Not David. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Meaning you have revived me or relieved me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me like concerning this ongoing incident. And hear my prayer. So David is focused, he's not, he's not falling apart, he knows that he will come through this, but like I said last Sunday, he's more concerned about Absalom and his men, because David was not only a king, but he was also a father, not a good one of course, but he had a great, a great love for Absalom, and it may have been Absalom was his favourite son, but again, he's not good at disciplining, and that's why it's imperative, if you are a parent, to discipline your children, with love of course, don't go overboard, don't, uh, Cause your children to bleed, you understand. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Anacede on God, like I say, not on David. Thou hast, past tense, enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me, 
and hear my prayer. Go to Jeremiah chapter 23. I do believe in the depravity of man. Uh, I believe we are dead in trespasses and sins. And uh, we were without Christ. No hope without God in the world until God saved us. Uh, but I don't hold to Calvin's definition of total depravity. You see, it's like this. Even unsaved people can show goodness, kindness to unsaved people. Or unsaved people can show goodness and kindness to saved people. Go back to World War Two. It was, I think, in Treblinka or Dachau or maybe Sachsenhausen. I forget which camp it was. And uh, there was a saved woman who was enjoying... Bible time, and she was reading her Bible every day, winning people left, right, and center. In fact, I think it was Auschwitz. And he got wind that she was reading her Bible every day, getting people saved. And he said, if I see you with that Bible, I will confiscate it. And she kept praying about it. And she won him over. And he cut her some slack. And uh, she was able to lead people to the Lord. She was a Jew, got saved uh, before World War II, went through World War II. And I discussed her a few Sundays ago, went to Israel after the war. And the Jews were very suspicious of her straight away, or to start off with. Who are you? How did you survive the war? What's your story? Sort of a thing. And she said, well, I'm a Jew, just like you, which shocked them. She had blonde hair, blue eyes. And I was able to win Jews to Jesus throughout World War II. And of course she did. And she lived in Israel. I think she died in Israel back in 1980. But my point is this. He was an unsaved commandant, a Catholic. Most of them were, of course. But he wasn't totally depraved. He showed goodness, kindness to a woman. So you can, if you're lost, be unsaved. Or if you are lost, an unsaved person, you can still show goodness to people. You know right from wrong, good from evil. Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 23, look up verse 6. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord, our righteousness. Not Israel's righteousness. God's righteousness, going back to Psalm 4.1. I rejoice, or hear me, O God, when I call upon you. Hear me when I call, O God, of my, my righteousness. My Lord and my God, like I say, the God of my salvation. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called. The Lord our righteousness. Go to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So I do believe a lost man, a lost woman if they want to, can show kindness, can show goodness, can cut slack to someone that concentration camp guard was able to show goodness and kindness to a saved woman. Uh, Goering's brother was also uh, very good at saving Jews during World War II, not so well known. And Goering's brother, Albert Goering, uh, was always uh, stepping in to rescue the Jews. And of course, the SS got sick of this. And they would arrest Albert, take him off to the local police station, and they'd say to him, so what's your name? And he would say, Goering. And they'd be absolutely frozen with fear. What, the Goering? And he'd say, yes, my brother is uh, Goering, Herman Goering. And of course, they'd phone up uh, Goering's office, but before they would phone up Himmler, because Himmler was, of course, head of the SS. And they would say to Heinrich Himmler, is it true that Albert Goering is Herman Goering's brother? And he would say, yes, have you got him again? Always being arrested, you see. And uh, he would say, you better release Albert, because, uh, of course, Herman was Hitler's number two. Yeah. So, you see, you can show goodness and kindness. You can show mercy as an unsaved person to others. So, Calvin's definition of total depravity is foolishness. Again, go back to pre-Christ. you got six or seven, no more than ten, famous Greek philosophers, which came up, or came up with all this philosophy. And uh, 
like I say, they have influenced people to this day. The Church of Rome have got many people. Aquinas would say it was okay to murder non-Catholics. Augustine would say it was okay to murder non-Catholics. They would all worship the Eucharist, all worship Mary, have influenced millions, if not billions, of Catholics going back over the centuries. And, of course, the Calvinists would come along, and people like uh, John Calvin would quote... In fact, it would be Luther who would quote uh, Augustine uh, 75 times. Luther would say that Augustine was his revered father. And Augustine wouldn't have given Luther the time of day. Calvin would fall back on Luther, who would fall back on Augustine. So you see, all these guys, whether you realise realize it or not, have all influenced generations and continue to influence generations, whether it's the evolutionary camp uh, the philosophy camp or the theological camp, going back to faith and works nonsense and Catholicism, evil, uh, evolution, and so on and so forth. First Corinthians chapter one. First Corinthians chapter one. Uh, look at verse thirty. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth. Let him glory in the Lord. Going back to the Lord as my Redeemer, my Saviour, my glory, like the glorious one. You don't rejoice in your own righteousness. What can you offer the Lord? Nothing. Nothing whatsoever. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus. We are in Christ Jesus. And I showed you some verses a few Sundays ago looking at, at the end of time, Christ goes back into the Father. And of course we are in Christ, so we go back into the Father as well. Think about that sometime. We are in Christ right now, and one day Christ goes back into the Father, and we go back into the Father with, with, uh, with Christ. We are sealed into the Trinity for all of eternity. You can't comprehend that, but it's Bible. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus. That concerns your standing. Of course, your states will fluctuate, and I'll discuss that in a few moments. Who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness, imputation and sanctification set apart for worship and redemption, we have been redeemed, past tense, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Go back to Psalm chapter 4. So David would rejoice in the Lord. He's more concerned about Absalom, to be expected, of course. Uh, he was a family man. But I don't think he ever got over the incident concerning Absalom's insanity to attempt to overthrow Israel's king, Israel's sovereign. One more time, Psalm 4.1. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. And of course, Jehovah would hear his prayer and answer his prayer. Look at verse 2. O ye sons of men, how long will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love vanity and seek after leasing? Selah. Selah again returns, it would appear, three times in Psalm 3. And here it has returned in Psalm 4, like I say, meaning praise the Lord, hallelujah, amen. But concerning Israel's future state uh, during the tribulation, she will be preserved in Petra, Jordan. O ye sons of men, context, Absalom's men, how long will you turn my glory into shame? I am your king, I am your sovereign, and yet I am being treated like a fugitive. You are hot on my heels, you've got an army of around 10,000 pursuing me like a criminal. You've turned my name, you've turned the house of David into reproach. And David, like I say, is trying to weigh this all up. What's going on? How could this come to it? And of course, Absalom is filled with envy, anger, jealous of Solomon, who was the king in waiting. And like I say, the devil was able to work on Absalom. He was able to work on Simon Peter, 
he was able to work on Judas Iscariot. And uh, it's like I said over the years, over the years that if you are saved, he will work on you. He'll have no trouble getting you to do what you shouldn't do. What you should do is the hard part. But what you shouldn't do is normally the easy part, isn't it? O ye sons of men, how long you turn my glory into shame. You are causing me to run like a fugitive, like a vagabond, like a criminal. This is horrendous. This is humiliating. Enemies of Israel were aware of this. Probably the Philistines were aware of this. And others were watching and waiting and thinking to themselves, we could pounce. We could claim the throne. The kingdom of Israel is divided. You go back to the Six-Day War back in 1967, smack bang in the middle of Yom Kippur. The Jews were worshipping the Lord, those that believe on him, of course, and were offering their uh, prayers to him. It was the Day of Atonement, like I say. And uh, at the time, I think the Prime Minister was Golda Meir, uh, from memory and uh, Mushai Dayan was her chief of staff from memory and nobody saw this coming apparently and these Arab nations five or six was it no more than seven decided to launch a simultaneous attack on Israel and of course they got nearer than he probably could ever wish for the Jews stepped in and within a few hours were able to push the Arabs right back into their capital cities so David like I say is Shocked, but probably not surprised that this is taking place. And he says again, O ye sons of men, how long will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love vanity? Vanity of vanity, saith the Lord, all is vanity. And of course Solomon was David's son. And seek after leasing. Leasing is old English for lies. They believed a lie, you see. Absalom would promise them the world he couldn't deliver. Satan would promise Jesus the world he couldn't deliver. Matthew 4, Luke 4, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of this world. And Absalom said to his men, if you follow me, I'll be king. And when I get to be king, you'll be my lieutenants. You'll be my uh, soldiers, if you will. And we will fight together and take the crown, take the throne. Seek after leasing, stop believing in lies, sealer. Sealer or sailor. And like I said last Sunday, it can be pronounced either way, take your pick. But know that the Lord hath set apart him that is godly for himself. There's your sanctification from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The Lord will hear when I call unto him. And of course he would do. The Jews are a peculiar people. The church are peculiar people. Christians are a peculiar people. Not just in the sense of being a special called out people, which is what the word peculiar means uh, from the New Testament standpoint, Old English, but peculiar also uh, concerning that we don't always fit in. We don't roll along with the world. Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own hearts upon your bed and be still a sealer. He's speaking indirectly to Absalom. Son, if you can hear me, and of course he couldn't, he would, he would write this many years later, of course, but he's speaking as a father would speak to his son, although he's a bad son. Stand in awe and sin not. What would Paul say? Be ye angry and sin not. Commune with your own hearts upon your bed and be still. Stop and think what you are doing, Absalom. Meditate before you move. If Hitler hadn't gone into Russia when he had done, Russia wouldn't have been invaded. And there's every chance that Germany may have won the war. But because he went in when he went in, because Napoleon went into Russia when he went into Russia, both armies, probably the most uh, advanced and trained in the whole of mankind, failed miserably. The Russians, a third-rate nation, using spears and arrows, wheelbarrows, uh, Garden equipment, uh, agriculture equipment, <laughs> were fighting the Germans, a state-of-the-art uh, military force. 
pushed the Germans right back into Berlin. Napoleon was defeated, so on and so forth. But you see, the idea, the planning was all back to front. Hitler was deceived, Napoleon was deceived, Absalom was deceived. That's the context. And he's saying to his son, if you can hear me, son, whatever you do, don't push in, pull back. If you pull back, we could perhaps come to an understanding. It was said back in 1939, uh, Chamberlain went to meet uh, Hitler, tried to do a deal with Hitler. That's gone down in history as the biggest mistake in British history. A British Prime Minister trying to do a deal with Adolf Hitler. But of course it's too late. The wheels are in motion. Absalom has mobilised his men. They are smelling blood. They think they can defeat David. Completely underestimated him. Like the Germans would underestimate the Allies. And here's the same sort of a thing. Look at verse 6. In fact, look at verse 5. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. Sacrifices in consecration like a burnt offering... A confession like a sin offering, fellowship like a peace offering. David is still sacrificing to the Lord. I guess we can't really understand what it was like for David to be a king and for a second night sleeping rough and under imminent threat. David's men are with him, observing him. Absalom's men are with him and observing him. But you only have one captain, one king. You can't have two kings or two captains. And if you do, the results will be disastrous, of course. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust. Put your faith in the Lord. Going back to 2.12, Psalm 2.12, kiss the son. Concerning David, concerning Jesus, concerning Jesus, concerning David. Who wrote Romans? Paul. Who wrote Romans? The Holy Ghost. Double application. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled, set on fire, fray little, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Same sort of a thing. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. Look at verse 6. There be many that say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. Keep your hand there and go to Numbers chapter 6. So I do believe in the depravity of mankind. Unfortunately, many people over the years have misread the scripture have come to the erroneous conclusion that man is basically good, that man has something to offer the Lord, when of course he does not. If you think back to 1969, there was an awful murder which took place in Baltimore, uh, in America of course, around the New York area, east coast of America, and uh, back in 69, a nun was murdered. And what was going on, apparently back in 1969, was she was teaching at a private school, a private Catholic school, and uh, she was made aware by one of her female students that she was being abused by a Catholic priest. Nothing new, of course. And this went on for many, many years, many, many months. It was a very distressing uh, incident, true story, and I watched a documentary about it. It took me three nights to watch it to uh, get to the bottom of this a fascinating story. Numbers chapter 6. Numbers chapter 6. I'll get there in a few moments. And uh, she said to the victim that had confided in her that she would report this priest to the police. And I thought to myself, I wonder if she actually would do that. I mean, the Church of Rome is so wicked, so depraved. They've been covering up their sins for centuries. What a cut. A very long story short. This nun was in a relationship with a Jesuit priest. She thought she was pregnant by him. She wasn't. But it does appear that she was prepared to go to the police about this predator priest. And uh, when, this, when this predator priest was made aware that this nun was about to blow the whistle on his uh, child abuse, 
It would appear that he, or one of his flunkies, had her murdered. And the body was dumped near the location of where she lived. And I watched this documentary and I thought, they found five or six suspects. Three potential priests, a nun who was a housemate of this woman called Kathy, Sister Kathy, and a couple of other people that were tied in with the case, a couple of people that lived in the same block of apartments as she lived in, a sodomite who lived behind her, obsessed with her, and his brother got involved with the, we believe, the cover-up of the murder, and his uh, cousin got involved as well. So you got three uh, people from the laity, uh, and three people, maybe that four people, no, four, yeah, four people from the clergy that were also connected to the murder and cover-up of Sister Kathy. I only call her Sister Kathy for the sake of the recording. Uh, I don't recognise the uh, office of a nun in the Church of Rome or the office of the priest. But the point is this, that is depravity. Covering up a murder, the Church of Rome would hire canon lawyers. They would wipe the floor with victims of paedophilia. And uh, if you study this, uh, this uh, true story of Sister Kathy, as she's called, it will just blow your mind what the Church of Rome will go to when it comes to covering up for their sins and they've got many sins, of course. So I do believe in the depravity of man, but not Calvin's depravity. So I say that to reinforce my earlier point that we have nothing to offer the Lord. Nothing whatsoever. It's like this. Let's go back to the boat again. There's ten people on the boat. Five are men, five are women. There's holes in the boat. It's pitch black. There are sharks circling the boat. Nobody on board can swim. But on top of that, you've got paedophiles, you've got liars, you've got thieves, you've got kidnappers, you've got extortioners. You've got abortionists, you've got rapists, all that crowd of people on board a particular boat. Would you save the boat? Ask yourself that. If you could save that boat, if you could launch a rescue mission with uh, rescue equipment, would you intervene to save the boat? Would you? Think about it. That's what God thinks about us. Now, we're not all necessarily going to be paedophiles or rapists or murderers, but our hearts are just as wicked as those types of people. They've done what many people have thought to do. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. Numbers chapter 6, Numbers chapter 6, look at verse uh, 22. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron, and unto his son, saying, On this wise you shall bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, The Lord bless thee, and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee, and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee, and give thee peace. And they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. That's a wonderful benediction, a wonderful prayer, a wonderful statement concerning Israel. And of course we can and will apply it to the church today. But one more time from 24. The Lord bless thee. We say God bless you. We say the Lord be with you. We get that from the Old Testament of course. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. Protect you. This is what David is praying for. The Lord make his face shine upon thee. Do you honour him? The Church of Rome didn't back in 69 when they murdered that nun and covered it up. Uh, spent decades covering it up. Court case after court case. Canon lawyers were called upon. Private lawyers were called upon. They attacked many victims. One of their victims was a boy who was serving mass back in the late 1960s. And he told his mother that he was being abused by this priest. She went to Archbishop's house, kicked up a fuss, and they moved the priest that's their MO. They moved the priest, you see. Fast forward to the 1990s. Flashbacks were coming his way. He saw news reports that this priest was being investigated again. And he was called into Archbishop's house. And the first thing they said to this guy is, do you want a boat? 
And he said, what do you mean to own a boat? So I've got three boats. I'm a dentist. I'm a very wealthy man. I've got a wife and three children. I'm very successful. And of course, he realised they were trying to buy him off. And he said, don't give me a boat. Do what is right. And of course, they don't know what that is. What is right? It's subjective. Going back to Aquinas, Augustine, Eusebius, Jerome, all your favourite Catholic saints, coming along, rewriting history, spiritualising the Bible, and that group of people have ruined billions of Catholics, Darwin, a Freemason, Huxley with his sweatshops in uh, Manchester, Hengels, excuse me, and also Huxley put the money up for his book, Origin of the Species, uh, all those people that were exploited in his sweatshops, Socrates, uh, Spinoza, is it uh, Spinoza? Spinoza, yeah. Spinoza. I've got all the names, uh, but I can't think of any more at the moment, uh, have just ruined generations of people. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee. That's what we want each and every day. And give thee peace. Peace. David had it, but Absalom did not. And they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. Go to Isaiah uh, chapter 60. So man is basically no good. You should know that by now, if you are over the age of 18, or let's give you a bit more uh, leeway, over the age of 28, if you are 30 plus, you should know that mankind is basically no good. Uh, and if you don't, you haven't lived. If you think back to the late 1970s, early 1980s, or mid to late 70s, in uh, Chile, you had the Dina, and they were Pinochet's private police, secret police, and uh, they were very good at uh, rounding up those that would question Pinochet's authority, another Catholic, of course, and they would get their victims and brick them up in walls. What a clever idea. Left-wing activists, Christians, perhaps a few stray priests, a few stray nuns, but for the most part the Church of Rome were protected in Chile, Catholic country, of course, and these people that would question the Dina were put into walls and bricked up alive. What a clever idea. Depravity again. Or you think about uh, Cuba, Cuba, good old uh, Castro, and his secret police were very good at throwing people alive out of helicopters into shark-infested waters. The depravity of man is found throughout Scripture. In Genesis 6, it says his heart was only wicked continually. The Word of God says how, how, how our hearts are desperately wicked. Our tongues are full of poison and deceits. We are wicked through and through. But to get people to see that, to recognize that, to accept it is difficult. We do street work, we speak to people, and we always say to people, if you were to die today, where would you go? And they say, well, I'm not a bad person. There's your first mistake. Start to justify yourself. Well, if there is a God, I'll take my chances. That's a second mistake. They have been ruined by philosophy, evolution, Catholicism, etc., etc., etc. And it takes a brave Bible believer to attempt to try and unravel it. Sometimes it'll take maybe two or three generations to undo some of the damage. But sometimes it's too little too late. Uh, Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60. Look at verse 1. Arise, shine, for thy light is come. And the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. I love that. Arise, shine, for thy light, thy light. God's light, the Father's light. There's your Father. There's your son, for thy light, Christ is the light of the world, is come. And the glory, there's the Holy Ghost, of the Lord is risen upon thee. There's your trinity, which is also under attack today like never before. Isaiah 60 verse 1, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord 
is risen upon thee. That's what we want. That's what we need. God's righteousness, not our own. His light, not ours. We are here to serve him. He's not here to serve us. Go back to Psalm chapter 4. Psalm chapter 4. You will never come to the Lord until you humble yourself, till you get on your knees if necessary. Turn to him completely broken if necessary. Receive him as a beggar if necessary. But receive him. Turn to him. Believe on him. Don't keep justifying yourself. Don't look at yourself as some wonderful person, some great person. The word of God says you were without Christ. You were without Christ. Without any hope, without God in the world. Ephesians chapter 2. You were completely lost without him before he saved you. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You had nothing to offer him, but he had plenty to offer you. So, back to the boat again. The boat is sinking. You're on board. It's pitch black. You can't swim. Sharks all over the place. What can you do? You can't save yourself, can you? If you could save yourself, you would have saved yourself by now. And that's why I gave you that verse a few weeks ago. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. For it is God that worketh in you. And that last part is many times neglected. For it is God that worketh in you. But also from Psalm 2, like verse 11, read it again. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice with trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Make your calling and election, election sure. Lay hold on eternal life. You've already got it. So now appropriate it. Put your faith into action. That's what James would say. Put your faith into action. Faith without works is worthless. But faith and works when they come together. Is what we are really interested in this morning. Uh, four six again. There be many that say. Who will show us any good? What good can come out of this? David has been overthrown. Or so they thought. His kingdom has been forever destroyed. Or so they thought. Britain they thought was on her knees. In America back in 1940. Most Americans thought we were finished. Wires were going back uh, from London to Washington. I think it was Joe Kennedy, yeah, who was the American ambassador, another Catholic, yeah. was wiring the White House from London saying that Britain is finished, that we will surrender, like the French had done, like most of Europe had done. And of course he wanted it to happen. He was a Catholic. And the Church of Rome had have never forgiven Britain for the Reformation. And this papal knight is wiring FDR, saying we think Britain is finished. Uh, finished. She can't survive this. She can't come through this. Every other country just folded like a pack of cards. And of course, Royal Britannia had one more fight left inside of her. And old Kennedy must have been kicking his self when he realised that we weren't going to just lie over, just roll over and die. David wasn't just going to roll over and die. David would get up and fight. And it's like this, if you are a Christian and you are struggling at the moment, suffering, maybe you are under constant attack from the devil, you can't handle your sin, your sin is overtaking you, fight! Get up. Keep pushing on. Don't allow yourself to be ruined or allow yourself to be tossed to and fro. David got up and returned. Britain got up and returned. And Absalom, like I say, would die a cursed death, as would Judas Iscariot. There be many that say, Who will show us any good? Lord, lift thou up the lights of thy countenance upon us. Lord, shine upon us. We are your people. We are called by your name. We are existing for your glory. The church is also exist, existing for the glory of God. But go back to verse 1 again. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. So I say this to any dispensationalist that argues that people are going to be saved by their faith and works in the tribulation, that they have failed to rightly divide the word of truth. And I'll show you from Psalm 5, like verse 8. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness, because of mine enemies, 
Make thy way straight before my face. So there you are, scripture with scripture. 4158. He's not speaking about his own physical righteousness. He has nothing to offer the Lord. Physically, he can't offer him anything. He's, he's on the run. And even spiritually, he has nothing to offer the Lord. His state at times was appalling. He would see uh, Bathsheba. And the moment he saw he wanted her, and the moment she saw him, she wanted him. They came together. And of course, uh, a child was conceived. And the Lord would destroy that child. He stayed with her. Had Solomon, who was greatly beloved. And the Lord would use Solomon. Would promise him all sorts of things. If he would stay faithful to him. He wouldn't, of course. He would deviate from the Lord. And as a result, his kingdom was cut down. And his days were cut down. And he wasn't even 60 when he died. Not even 60 when he died. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness. Because of mine enemies, make thy way straight before my face. So scripture, scripture, you can see it. If you have eyes to see, ears to hear that. You have no righteousness of your own. You have nothing to offer the, uh, nothing to offer the Lord yourself. And when that boat is sinking and a rescue boat is sent to rescue you, save you, you will say, yes, please, save us, save us. Like the, like the uh, Titanic, as it was going down, people are saying, uh, dispatch the boats, the lifeboats save us they couldn't save themselves it was freezing cold off the atlantic ocean of course many were saved because they got into the boat and the boat was provided for them and in type the boat is a picture of the lord jesus christ so we will close it there and uh, finish this next week as we continue to build on david how he's going to be struggling until this incident has come to a close and i'll say one final time that if you are a parent especially a single parent raising boys whether you are a man or woman but especially if you are raising boys you better love them and you better discipline them as well don't allow them to discipline you don't allow them to do what absalom would do to his father david one of our fears is that people single parents especially single mothers raising kids on their own uh if they're not careful they will end up being the victims of domestic abuse i saw a documentary a few years ago a woman was raising a son on her own he had uh uh, some learning difficulties it may be in like bipolar or something along those lines I think it was schizophrenic actually no father present of course and she was trying to raise her son on her own and these, this uh, camera crew were invited into her home to watch her trying to raise her son with schizophrenia uh, terrible disorder many times it's devil possession of course demons and on one occasion this boy started to kick off started to slap his mother around the face she hadn't disciplined him when he was young you see and it got so bad the film crew had to step in and the film crew got in between mother and son. The police were called. And eventually they were able to defuse it. So you better do what David didn't do. Some of you fathers and some of you mothers better do what David did not do. Had David stepped in, disciplined Absalom and loved him, of course, this would not have happened. But because David didn't step in, his son was able to rise up and attempt to overthrow King David. And this goes down as one of the most sorry stories in the whole of Scripture. Could have been avoided, but David... As we said many times over the last few weeks now, wasn't as good as he could have been. Eli, Samuel, wasn't as good as they could have been. And of course, others in scripture, Manasseh, an awful, wicked, disastrous king, uh, could have been a whole lot better. But due to his sin, due to his rebellion, uh, was just as wicked as Ahab. But Manasseh got saved on his deathbed, whereas Ahab did not. Absalom would perish. Judas Iscariot would perish. Solomon, we believe, was saved. But I'm not sure about Solomon's son. But we'll close it there and pick it up next week in verse 7. Psalm 4 begins with the inscription to the chief musician on Niganuth or Niganoth, 
a psalm of David, basically meaning chief musician or choir director. And last week we looked at David's call, uh, calling the name of the Lord to be delivered. And I guess this chapter, if we were to sum it up in a few words, would be a coup d'etat. If you go back maybe 10 or 15 years ago, there were three almost back-to-back coups in Egypt. It would begin with the overthrow of one particular leader who was replaced by another particular leader who was finally replaced by another particular leader. Three presidents, three leaders over a period of around 10 or 15 years, like I say. But this chapter basically not only concerns a coup d'etat, like I say, and if you go back to the 1950s when a group of bandits, and of course I'm referring to Fidel Castro, less than 20 men decided to overthrow the government of Cuba. And it was a great success as far as they were concerned. We'll go back to the 1970s when Pinochet, and we discussed Chile last Sunday, decided to overthrow the communist government. Of course, Pinochet was a fascist general backed by the Americans. These are what we call secular coups for the most part. But if you think of a son or a daughter taking on their mother or father, that is pretty uh, depressing, pretty grim, pretty unthinkable. I can't think of anything worse than one of your own children deciding to take you on, deciding to publicly overthrow you. And of course, that is what Absalom was attempting to do, and he almost did it. And King David, as the Lord's anointed, had to push back Absalom's treacherous behavior. If you go to Second Corinthians uh, chapter 4, there is a parallel passage to one of the greats in the New Testament, being the Apostle Paul. And he's very similar to one of the greats in the Old Testament, being King David. And in Second Corinthians uh, chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul picks up on what it's like to serve the Lord, what it's like to really go through the mill. A few days ago, I sent a video to watch uh, from Patrick about a pastor who's written a book about the Millennial Kingdom. And I watched maybe 10 minutes or so, and it was basically that if you don't live a good life like the here and now, if you don't live a a consecrated life like the here and now, uh, it's going to be rough for you when the thousand year reign begins and he, he made the argument basically that you will go to hell for a thousand years it's a ridiculous statement it's a mickey mouse exegesis it's basically asegesis because it's like this once you got saved if you are saved you are in christ you are forever with christ and i gave you the scripture from first corinthians 15 a few weeks ago which says that when time ends christ goes back into the father back into the spirit the trinity are now one uh once again and of course we go into christ into the trinity so we are in christ in the trinity forever so how a christian can be put into hell for a thousand years for not living a good life is beyond me it's like if i had time or i was asked to write a book about christianity i wouldn't spend five minutes writing about holiness some years ago i was given a book by rc ryle the late anglican bishop friend put it in the post to me and i read it very interesting book And I showed it to a friend of mine who's now with the Lord. And I said to him, have you seen this book? It's written by R.C. Ryle called Holiness. And he looked at the book and he started laughing. And I said, what are you laughing for? He said, this guy was a bishop in the Church of England on a nice comfortable salary. What did he know about holiness? I thought, yeah, good point. What did he know about holiness? Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, look at verse 8. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken cast down but not destroyed always bearing about in the body the dying of the lord jesus that the life also of jesus might be made manifest in our body to go back to the fourth psalm this will be week number 10 incidentally and we have recorded over six 
hours of material so far. And of course, you know that most of the Book of Psalms is devotional, not doctrinal. So we have to tread very carefully when we read some of these wonderful passages from the Old Testament. But going back to my opening comments, this book made the argument that Christians who don't live it, like I say, will go to hell for 1,000 years, which of course is ridiculous. It's like a Protestant purgatory. And the problem with that is if we were to go to hell for a 1,000 years, where is Christ? Does he go with us into hell? We are bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. You see, one of the reasons why so many people get messed up on subjects like eschatology is because they don't know the Pauline epistles. Romans 8 says, once you are saved, you are forever saved. You are forever safe in the beloved. You can't be separated from him. Wherever he is, we are with him. So therefore, when I was given that book, I read it, interesting book, but there was problems with it. You see, if you are holy, if you live a holy life, if you live a consecrated life, if you are living a crucified life, you don't speak about it. You don't go on record about it. You don't brag about it. And I wouldn't spend five minutes writing a book to try and talk people out of their salvation or to rob people of their assurance. Yes, there'll be rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. We know that. Yes, there'll be pros and cons for how we lived after we were saved. We know that. But you won't go to hell forever or even temporarily upon death. So I say all of these things because it goes back to what I said last Sunday uh, concerning Psalm 4.1. Look at it again. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness, my righteousness. Now I will spend a much, uh, much more time in the coming weeks and months looking at David's righteousness, but be mindful of this. He had no righteousness. He was a serial fornicator. He was a serial adulterer. He was a murderer. Yes, he was saved. Yes, he was beloved. Yes, he was Israel's finest king and he's in heaven today, but he had no righteousness of his own. I have no righteousness of my own. You have no righteousness of your own. So don't be tossed to and fro by some of these holiness preachers. Ryle's book was a great book, but it's problematic, and I'm sure there are some extracts or material, or some of these, uh, some great material from this book in question, but if you study it in line of scripture and verse by verse in the context, you will soon discover that what it's saying is basically problematic. Well, I sat down a few weeks ago to prepare to record this mammoth task and it will take at least three to five years to faithfully and methodically record every passage in the book of psalms and like i said a few moments ago mostly uh, devotional not try uh, not doctrinal and i noticed some interesting things like from psalm 1 verse 1 no mention of god psalm 2 verse 1 no mention of god but psalm 3 verse 1 lord psalm 4 verse 1 O god psalm 5 verse 1 O lord Psalm 601, O Lord. Psalm 701, O Lord my God. Psalm 8, 1, O Lord our Lord. El Elyon for our Hebrew friends. Uh, 9, 1, O Lord. 10, 1, O Lord. 11, 1, the Lord. Uh, 12, 1, Lord. 13, 1, O Lord. 14, God. 15, Lord. 16, O God. 17, O Lord. 18, 1, O Lord. 19, 1, God. 21, the Lord. 21, O Lord. It goes on and on and on and on and on, right up until Psalm 34, 35, 36. So every psalm starts with a petition, calling on the name of the Lord. Because this book was written by King David for the most part. And like I say, he is going to be on the new earth for a thousand years with the Messiah, one of the greats in the Old Testament. But again, when it comes to his righteousness, he has no righteousness. I have no righteousness. Patrick has no righteousness. We all have no righteousness of our own. That's why Christ had to die for our sins. It's like this. Had he just come to the earth and lived for three and a half years and preached to the people, did his miracles and corrected 
misunderstandings, which he would do many times in the four Gospels, and show people what it was really like to live, the life that we cannot live. Had he done all those things and then gone back to glory, that would have been all very well and good, but there was no payment. There would have been no payment made for sin. He came to die for our sins. He was buried, and after three days was raised from the dead. So again, you need to understand that if we could save ourselves, or if he was able to save us any other way, apart from sending his son, he would have done so. But he sent his son to die for our sins, because we can't die for ourselves. All of the Old Testament greats back in the Old Testament would sacrifice, and we looked at that last week from Psalm uh, 4, 5, and they all worshipped Jehovah in their own different ways, but they would all bring sacrifices to him. And somebody once said this, all of the Old Testament greats look forward to the cross, and all of the New Testament greats look back to the cross. That's incorrect. God looked forward to the cross, and he saw Christ on Calvary's hill, 30 AD, and all of the sacrifices pre-30 AD, all pointed towards Christ. And that's why we break bread every Sunday in commemoration as to what he did for our sins. So I just want to make those opening remarks before we get to Psalm 4 and conclude it, because I am always, always concerned when I come across people attempting to argue that they are basically good or that they can basically live the way that we cannot live. I wouldn't spend any time, and I don't spend any time, trying to talk people out of their assurance of salvation or writing books about holiness. If you are holy, live holy. You don't need to boast about it or go on record about it or tell people how great you are. And that old friend of mine who's now with the Lord, being a Christian at that time, a good 60 years, he thought I was mad to be reading such a book. I wasn't as narrow-minded as he was, but I know I knew what he was trying to argue, that a bishop in the Church of England, yes, many years ago, uh, was for the most part a blessing to the brethren. But again, a bishop living a good, comfortable life in a nice part of the UK, what can he talk to you about when it comes to holiness or suffering? This pastor in America written a book, a thousand pages, about the thousand-year reign. Why not spend time writing about Christ, the gospel, getting people saved, or putting forward arguments for the evidence of Christianity? Most of your celebrity Christians, if you watch them very carefully and study them very carefully and listen to them very carefully, what they are basically doing is reaching out to those that are already saved to basically further enlighten them. They're not evangelistic, and that's something which I pray that we will never become at this ministry. Psalm 4, Psalm 4, look at verse 6. There be many that say, Who will show us any good? Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. Keep your hand there, and go to Romans chapter 5. So like I say, this will be week number 10. This is Ex-Catholics for Christ Radio. My name is James Battelle, and the purpose of this ministry and this recording and this live Lord's Day service is to read every verse in the book of Psalms. And up until probably 30 AD, if you were a Jew and you found yourself in a difficult situation, perhaps a dying child, or you've been left by a spouse, or you've been struggling with this or that, or being persecuted. And of course, some of those guys I just mentioned a few moments ago are not persecuted like uh, many Christians should be. And I include myself. I'm not persecuted like I should be. I know that. I'm not particularly holy. I know that. I, I never claim to be holy. I never claim to be something that I'm not. But those wonderful Psalms, all 150 of them, uh, Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5, would offer great hope and comfort. And then once the Jews rejected Jesus, and they would say, let his blood be on us, the book of Psalms was a closed book. Because most of the Psalms, if you, if you read them very carefully, are eschatological. They are concerning the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Jews, for the most part, to this day, don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So basically, this part of the Old Testament, and so many others, of course, are closed to the Jews. If you take a Jew to uh, Isaiah 
53 or Psalm 22 especially and ask them to read it, they can't comprehend it. It's closed to them because they have rejected the author of the book, the Holy Ghost. And once you reject him, he rejects you. And once he rejects you, this book is closed to you. Romans 5, Romans 5, uh, look at verse 5. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Ungodly, keep your hand there and go back to Psalm 1. Psalm 1, look at verse 1. Blessed, happy, is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. Nor standeth in the way of sinners. He died for sinners as well. And I showed you ten weeks ago that when sinner or sinners first appears in scripture, it is connected to sodomy, sodomites. Nor sitteth in a seat of the scornful. Go back to Romans 5. Romans 5. Uh, look at verse 7. For scarcely, barely, for a righteous man. A good man. A righteous man. Nicodemus was a righteous man. Joseph of Arimathea was a righteous man. I'm sure Ryle was a righteous man. But that's not enough just to be righteous. You need to be declared to be righteous. You need imputation. For scarcely, for barely, for a righteous man would one die. And that's very true. We've spoken over the years about people that were in World War II. Like uh, Maximilian Kobe. Is that right? Kobe, yeah. Kobe. Polish. Uh, Polish priest. Yeah. And uh, we spoke about uh, the Scottish uh, runner, Eric Little. Who was in a uh, Japanese uh, concentration camp in China during World War Two, and uh, they both stepped forward, both people, and they allowed uh, others to be released, and they stayed in their place. That's to be commended. Kobe, a priest, I doubt he understood the gospel. Liddell was a five-point Calvinist, but a great runner, a great athlete. He gave everything to go to the mission field, and it said when he uh, died, uh, the whole of Scotland mourned for one of Scotland's finest sons. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure, perhaps... For a good man, some would even dare to die. That's true. You may say, well, I'm going to die for my sibling. I'm sure David would have died for Absalom, but Absalom wouldn't have died for David. And it goes back to what I've been saying over the last few Sundays, how it must have been heartbreaking for David to watch his son, his favourite son perhaps, attempting a public coup d'etat, almost getting away with it. And the Lord was, of course, behind everything. Romans 8.28, he was controlling everything. And David knew that Jehovah could step in, would step in when he wanted to do so, but he had to sweat it out for a few days. But look at uh, 5.8. But God commendeth his love toward us. A personification of love was Christ on the cross. And what would they do? Put him on the cross. They would say, he trusted in God. Let him come down now and see if God will have him. And they would mock him right up until the last minute. But God commendeth his love toward us, the body of Christ, uh, directly but indirectly the world, of course, in that while we were yet sinners, sinners, Going back to Genesis 13, 13, sinners, wicked sinners. Of course, we're not all former sodomites or former lesbians, you understand, or former murderers or rapists or this or that. And yet God's people many times in the Old Testament were guilty of all of those things apart from sodomy. I can't find anywhere in scripture where any of God's people practice sodomy. I can find murder, adultery, fornication like King David. I can find murder connected with Moses. I can find... Uh, Lying and stealing and cheating connected with Jacob, but I can't find sodomy connected with any of God's saints. That's not to say it wasn't possible, but you're not told about that. But one more time, 5.8, but God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Go back to Psalm chapter 4. So Psalm chapter 4 continues David's plea, 
And it says over in verse 6 again, Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. Lord, let us see your face. We're living in dark days, Lord. The Philistines are probably aware that my son, my son, can you believe, is attempting to overthrow me. I am his father and I am the Lord's anointed. This is treachery. Some years ago, we were doing some street work in a town not far from here. And we got talking to a former mayor of our town. And uh, we were saying that we do a lot of street work, street preaching, so on and so forth. And uh, we were talking about freedom of speech. And he said, yes, yeah, so, he said, that's OK. He said, uh, you can preach on the streets. You can go onto the steps of the local town hall, blah, blah, blah. But you can't preach sedition. Always remember him saying that, sedition. Mm. And that is another word for a coup d'etat. And of course, we don't hold to sedition. We're told to pray for our governments. But I'll say this. If I wasn't a Christian, I'd be very radical and I've got a lot of views and ideas about this and that, and I've often thought about this, that if I wasn't saved, if I didn't know the Bible, if I didn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'd be very, very radical. You couldn't shut me up. It was Trotsky who would spend 18 hours a day on the streets, seven days a week, mm. when uh, the Russians overthrew uh, Tsar Nicholas, another coup d'etat. 18 hours a day. You couldn't shut him up. It was Mandela who spent, was it three days? In courts in South Africa, was it three days? Yep, yep, summing up. Summing up, defending himself, three days. And it was man, It was also Hitler, who spent, I think, three or four days yep. lecturing uh, the courts about his rights before he went to prison uh, and wrote Mein Kampf, thanks to a Jesuit priest. Yep. And last week we discussed that Jesuit priest who got that nun pregnant, or she thought she was pregnant, Sister Kathy, and that Jesuit priest today is a Methodist minister. And I discussed that at length last week to, again, try and dismantle the notion that we are good. We are all wicked from top to toe, from head to toe. So if you think you are good, you don't know yourself very well. And if you think you are good, you, know, you don't know the book very well either. I'll, I'll say this one more time, that being in David's shoes, trying to see what was going on through the eyes of David, must have been very difficult for him. His men are standing all around him saying, if that was my son, if that was my son, they wouldn't say it publicly, of course, but they're saying it privately under their breath. That was my son. I wouldn't let it happen. Some years ago, we knew a brother who was a strong believer, and he was always very proud of his family all being saved. And uh, a few years after boasting that his family were all saved, it uh, came out that his daughter had AIDS. Mm. And uh, it was a shock when we heard that. And he had to sort of make that clear that she did have AIDS. Uh, why he told us that, I don't know. It was his own, it was his own private family business. And it was a very strange story how she got involved with this Hindu man and he infected her and uh, he died of AIDS and they had a son together and the son, praise the Lord, is clear but the mother's got it, living with it, HIV positive, on heavy medication. See, again, you've got to take the time just to uh, educate yourself and she could be the sort of person who perhaps thought she was a good person, a righteous person before she contracted HIV, having sex with a man who she wasn't even married to. Like I say, she's having to live with the consequences. But this piece of scripture is about family. Honour thy father and mother. Had David been a bit more consistent, been around a bit more, been more available to his 20 plus children, this perhaps, perhaps may not have happened. We can't say that for sure, of course. If you spoil your child or children, they become sport brats. And if you neglect your children, they can become uh, out of control, basically. Psalm 4, Psalm 4, look at verse 7. Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time that their corn and their wine increased. So gladness in God, not money. And he has the perfect peace, which we many times look for. Keep your hand there and go to Isaiah 26. Isaiah 26. I am naturally cynical. 
and skeptical by nature. I don't advocate that and I don't like to burst people's bubbles. I know when you first got saved, when I first got saved, when we all first got saved, it was like a honeymoon. Wonderful times and uh, you come across you come across these preachers online and it's like wow wonderful i went to mass regularly never once heard a message about the second coming of christ never once heard a message about the judgment seat of christ or the great white throne judgment and i never never heard a sermon about hell how can that be possible a so-called apostolic church and yet never once do they preach about the second coming of christ what is going on this book is about a king and a kingdom this book is about when the king returns to claim his kingdom on the new earth with the redeemed Jew, New Jerusalem for the church. And again, if you are saved, you are going to be forever with the Lord. Uh, Isaiah 26, Isaiah 26, look at verse 3. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. That was David's strong point. Had a great love for the Lord, a great knowledge of the Lord. He could recite the Psalms back to front. The Psalms is basically Israel's song book. It's their national anthem, if you will. And up until 30 AD, any Jew anywhere could read it and get a great blessing. But once they put their Messiah on the cross, once they crucified him, once they turned from him, this wonderful book in the Old Testament, smack bang in the middle of your Bible, is a closed book to them. Of course, when they turn back to the Messiah, he will turn to them, and these promises will be relevant to them. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, double peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. Why? Because he trusteth in thee. And that's the key of course. Go to Second Corinthians chapter 13. Second Corinthians chapter 13. It is possible if you walk with the Lord. If you pray to the Lord. If you speak to the Lord. If you consecrate your life to the Lord. And you should of course. There's no reason for you to sin. There's no reason for you not to be holy. But I'm just leveling with you. I don't kid people. I don't raise the bar like these Lordship Salvation people do. Whether Calvinist or Arminian. I like to be honest with people. And say so I've been a Christian almost 19 years, not particularly holy, uh, but I love the Lord. I read the Bible every day. I preach and teach. I try to witness to people. I try and get people saved. I think I'm doing far more than most of your celebrity Christians, but I won't brag about it, so I don't talk about it. I'm not interested in my state, but my standing. And of course, standing in states, as you all know, is, uh, is not the same thing. Uh, 2 Corinthians 13, look at verse 11. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect like complete, like not double-minded. Be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. So that is the key for every Christian. If he or she walks with the Lord, meditates on the word, they can do great things. But if you stop walking with the Lord, stop meditating on the word, you will become backslidden within five minutes. Finally, brethren, Christian people, farewell, be perfect, be of good comfort, he would say over in Thessalonians, comfort one another with these words concerning the rapture of the church, not the second coming. Be of one mind, be united. Don't allow schisms to creep in. That's what 1 Corinthians is all about. Uh, some say they are of Cephas, some say they are of Chloe, some say they are of Apollos and Paul and so on and so forth. And he would say, did those people die for you? No, they didn't. Christ died for you. Again, going back to my earlier remarks. If we could be saved any other way, it would have been made possible to be saved any other way. If we could be saved by leading holy and good righteous lives, the Lord would have accepted that. But it's not enough. It would never be enough. We need somebody to die in our place, of course. Live in peace. Peace, going back to the perfect peace from Isaiah uh, 26. And the God of love, yes, he is love, but he's also a God of wrath, a God of anger. It would say uh, over in, uh, I think it's First John, memory, love not the world. 
know the things that so in the world and it was saying John 3.16 for God so loved the world it was saying 1 John 4 that uh, God is love and it would say over in uh, Hebrews, our God is a consuming fire. Four different verses, and your average Christian thinks that they are contradictory. No, they're not. They are presenting to all of us the two sides of God. He's holy, but he's also righteous. He's a God, he's a God of love, but he's also a God of war. But one more time, finally, brethren, farewell, be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. Go back to Psalm 4. Psalm 4. Look at seven again. Thou hast put gladness in my heart, David speaking, more than in the time that their corn and their wine increased. We've had good times, he's saying. We've been very prosperous. Of course, when Solomon would replace David, there would be peace for a period of time. And Solomon would be incredibly wealthy and successful. But of course, like all good men, it could be Noah, it could be David or Josiah or Gideon. Uh, sin would present itself and of course when sin presents itself to anyone anywhere at any time good people fall righteous people fall i don't take any delights in hearing about people falling i saw a documentary a few nights ago called the family and it's about a group in america which began back in the 1930s in seattle and the idea was to bring people together and pray for one's local government one's local council this group grew over the years and from the 1950s onwards has been able to influence every American president. And every February they have what's called the Prayer Breakfast. It's an annual event and they all go to it. Every president goes to it going right back to Eisenhower. And I watched that documentary and a couple of uh, senators who are part of that movement called the Family or the Fellowship. Well-intended people, well-intended, Christian on the outside. Born again, probably not, but well-intended, very much into the social gospel, praying for their leaders, their governments, which I can't fault, and never would, of course. And yet two of these famous American senators both fell due to discretions, due to infidelity. And I took no delights in that whatsoever. I don't take a delight when a man falls or a woman falls. And if you take any delight when a man or a man falls or a woman falls, you had a fellowship with the Lord, basically. But here David is rejoicing in God, uh, not money. He is rejoicing in the good times, but he's also rejoicing in the bad times. What Paul say? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Look at verse 8. I will both lay me down in sleep and peace, for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. So one more time, the context. David, Absalom. David is on the run from Absalom. He's waiting for the Lord to step in and put this folly to an end. He's surrounded by his own men who don't know what's going on. They are shocked that David hasn't been able to control his own wayward son. Nothing worse than having a wayward child shaming uh, their parents. If you are a Muslim, for example, and you become a Christian, especially in the Middle East, and it gets out, you are considered to be a disgrace to your family. And they will, if they want to, can kill you. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. <coughs> So I got an email a few days ago from our good brother in Catalonia and he asked me this. He said, uh, please explain to us this Sunday why many people struggle to sleep at night and yet David was able to sleep like a baby. Well, there's several answers for that. First of all, if you go back through biblical times from probably, let's see now, uh, Enoch maybe to uh, the Apostle Paul, I suppose, those guys were working five or six days a week, 12 hours a day. They walked everywhere, no transportation. Yes, they may have had horses to 
hop onto or a donkey or a mule, but for the most part they were walking everywhere. They were probably up at five o'clock in the morning. I know it was Wesley who would get up at five every morning, pray for an hour, jump on his horse and travel all over England in the pouring rain in the winter or the baking sun in the summer. And he'd be meeting people as he was traveling around Britain. But Paul, the apostles, the Lord Jesus Christ would be walking everywhere. So if you work, if you work five or six days a week, and let's say you work 12 hours a day, let's say you are a blue collar worker. Let's say you're working with your hands. Let's say you, you, you are a farmer, perhaps. You're working out in the open, agriculture, perhaps. You're pretty tired, aren't you? You come home from work after a 12-hour day. You've been up since five o'clock in the morning. You have your meal. I remember some years ago, a friend uh, telling me that he knew of a guy who was a bricklayer and he'd been out of work for a long time and he was offered a job as a bricklayer and after working as a bricklayer for two or three weeks, he was exhausted and he, he would get up at five in the morning, he would travel to the place of his employment at six o'clock in the morning and from six till six, he was working, hard work, back-breaking work and he got home about half past six, seven o'clock, have a bath, first thing he would do, have a meal, have his dinner, straight to bed by half past seven. And he would sleep until the following morning. So if you work 12 hour days, 5 or 6 days a week with your hands perhaps out in the open. A blue collar worker like I say. You'll be very very tired. On top of that we've got many distractions today. If you go back to say 1900. No radio, no television, no internet, no satellite television. Very little to distract you. No cinema, no theatre. But today we are so heavily distracted. I can be sitting down making notes for a study like this and I do. Regularly, not just this, but other recordings, other preparations, other projects. And my phone will beep. I get a text message. I get an email. I get a phone call, perhaps. Or I think to read an article or check a particular uh, documentary, which would be helpful for a future study. And I'm always being distracted. And uh, I'm sure you are as well. Another reason why perhaps we don't sleep like we should do. Or another reason would be perhaps our diet. Too much sugar in food. Too much salt in food. A slice of bread if it's white, can be 130 calories. So if you eat throughout the day, not necessarily overeating, although many people do, but if you just eat normally three times a day, you will exceed your calories. I think for a man it's 2,000 calories. For a woman it's 1,500 calories per day. And you can overeat, or you can not, or not always overeat, but you can eat particular foods with a very high calorie count. So that's one of the reasons why Christians don't always sleep, because their body is full of sugar, full of salt. Not working a full day, too much time on their hands, and that's why they don't always sleep through the night. Not always, of course. You may be somebody who worries a lot. You may be full of anxiety. You may suffer with depression or this or that. You may be on tranquilizers or depression or antidepressants. You may be worrying about this or that. You may have unsaved children, unsaved grandchildren. Or you may have saved family, saved grandchildren who are in a cult, in a false system. And yes, it does happen. Saved people can stray into cults. Saved people can get tied up in all sorts of uh, unfortunate situation. So I would say, just to sum up very briefly, one of the reasons why people like David could say he was laying himself down, or he would lay himself down in peace and sleep, and also he would say the same from Psalm 3, uh, 5, I laid me down and slept, I awaked, we would say awoken, for the Lord to stay in me. So David was able to sleep through the night because he was the Lord's anointed, and as far as this incident was concerned, he was innocent of this incident. And that's one of the reasons why he could say my righteousness from 4.1 concerning this particular incident. Uh, incident. But I'll tell you something. Cast your eye over to Psalm 6.6. 6, scripture with scripture. Psalm 6.6. 6, I am weary with my groaning all the night. Make I my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. 
So there, straight away, David isn't quite sleeping as well as he would like us to think. He's crying. He is emotional. He's groaning. Of course, there is some poetry taking place here. But if you take Psalm 3, 5, and Psalm 4, 8, and Psalm 6, 6, I am weary with my groaning all the night, make I my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. You understand that, David? Yes, the one hand was able to sleep, but he was also weeping, crying, praying for his son Absalom to get into fellowship with him, to repent and to come back with him. So take all these verses together. It's a clearer picture of somebody who has the potential to sleep through the night, every night, seven uh, days a week, seven days a week. Of course, if, as you get older, you don't need as much sleep also. And men can have prostrate issues and women can also have uh, bladder issues. That's another reason why sometimes people wake up in the night. I would say this, that if you don't feel particularly well, get a blood test. Maybe your cholesterol is too high. Maybe you've got too much sugar in your blood. Like I say, it's in everything now. Eggs, butter, bread, just basic dairy products have salt and uh, too much salt, too much sugar oil. Keep you awake at night, but if you eat properly, exercise regularly, and uh, if you are like that builder working a 12-hour shift, uh, five or six days a week, or the Apostle Paul, who would walk everywhere and uh, was probably as thin as a rake, had no excess weight on him, and was working with his hands, a tent maker, or David, who was also a shepherd, there's no reason why you couldn't sleep through the night. So I hope that answers our brother's question uh, in Catalonia. So that will deal with Psalm 4. This has been the 10th week, working through the first four Psalms. And uh, as I say, this one piece of scripture, I won't call these chapters anymore. I've made that mistake a few times. It's not a chapter, it's a psalm. It's a uh, piece of the Old Testament, basically Hebrew poetry, which is different to English poetry, which relies on rhyme and rhythm, whereas Hebrew poetry relies on parallelism. Uh, but the main context of this piece of scripture is fathers and sons sons and fathers and trying to put down a coup which almost uh, succeeded and i've given you a few coups uh, already this morning so we'll close it there and next week return god willing to the fifth psalm psalm 5